Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. In this episode, New Labor Forum Books and Arts Editor, Samir Santi hosts a conversation with Gabriel Wynett, author of the recent book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt, America. Wynant is also the author of a related article in the spring 2021 issue of New Labor Forum, examining the vast expansion of the healthcare sector of our economy over the past half century, he traces its development to a combination of factors, including deindustrialization, union decline, an aging population, and a shredded social safety net. It is this historical process, Wynant argues, that ushered in a burgeoning low-wage healthcare workforce disproportionately represented by women and people of color who have become both essential and disposable, a contradiction made blatantly clear by the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's take a listen. I'm really delighted to be here today with Gabe Winant to talk about his new book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt, America. Gabe is an assistant professor at the University of History at the University of Chicago, where he works on questions around inequality and the history of capitalism. And he's also a prolific writer, one of those people I have on my um, read everything they write list, with work appearing in a wide range of venues, including the New York Times, N Plus One, New Republic, and elsewhere. The next shift, which is the subject of our discussion today, is a truly pathbreaking work of historical scholarship, offering, I think, one of the most insightful interpretations into how the world of work has changed from the end of the Second World War to today. The book confronts this process that we've all witnessed and experienced and certainly heard commentators talk about, which is the decline of manufacturing and the rise of service employment, and in particular, healthcare employment. And it asks, why exactly did that happen the way that it did? To bring this question to life, Gabe focuses on Pittsburgh, which was once home to the largest steel industry in the world. Uh, there's a reason why the football team there is called the Steelers, and which is now, like many other deindustrialized cities like it, the site of a sprawling medical industrial complex. As you know, just one illustration of this, which I didn't know, the, the former U.S. Steel Tower, U.S. Steel was once the largest industrial corporation in the world. Former U.S. Steel Tower is now emblazoned with the letters UPMC for University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. UPMC is today the largest private employer in Pennsylvania, and Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania aren't unique. In most metropolitan areas in what we call the Rust Belt, and, and in fact in some states like Pennsylvania, hospital systems are the largest employers. 
What Gabe shows in this book in incredibly powerful detail, I would add, is that this transition wasn't a coincidence. There's a process here that we have to understand. So let me stop talking and, and, and get to him. Gabe, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Samir. It's really great to, to join you and to, to have this event at, at CUNY at the School of Labor Studies, an institution that I feel you know, some connection to and uh, great inspiration from. Well, we're, we're thrilled to have you. And actually, I should note, Gabe, prior to my taking over as the, as the books and arts editor at New Labor Forum, Gabe was the editor of books and arts, so we can kind of claim him as one of our own, I think. So let's, uh, let's get started. I mean, you start the book by looking at this peculiar healthcare system that we have in the United States. It's built around private employer-based insurance for most of the population, with, with the exception of Medicare and Medicaid, which we'll get to, as well as a vast and, and almost entirely private system of providers from hospitals to outpatient clinics and nursing homes and so on. And you ask where this thing came from. And the central point you make in the book is that it has somewhat surprising origins, perhaps, for, for the audience, which is that it originated in the industrial economy of the mid-20th century. So can you start by explaining what that industrial economy looked like and, and how it laid the groundwork for the healthcare system that, that we've all inherited? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the key point to begin with is that if we think of the concept of social citizenship established by the New Deal, that's access to social rights like retirement, healthcare, et cetera. The, the, New, De the New Deal state constructed in the 1930s and 1940s eventually landed on a system for dispersing social rights through private sector employment. My own graduate school advisor, Jennifer Klein, her book For All These Rights is really important in showing how this worked. But if we take the case of healthcare in particular, you can see this really, really clearly, right? At the end of the 1940s, when Truman was president, he staged something of a campaign for what we would now call Medicare for All. He ran into intense opposition from the medical establishment, from a kind of rising Cold War anti-communist type sentiment. And as that campaign ran aground, his main social base, his main coalition, which consisted of industrial unions, the UAW, the United Steelworkers, the miners, and so on, they kind of made a calculation to withdraw their strength from that campaign and instead to invest their political capital in winning private sector plans from their own employers. So you, you start to see healthcare and pensions as well become a component of collective bargaining at the end of the 1940s. It's in 1949 that the court system says, in fact, it's a mandatory component of collective bargaining. It, it, that comes out of a steel industry case. You know, that's really how like employment-based health insurance proliferates across American society. That's really, I mean, it existed in little forms before this or in discrete pockets before this, but the way that it really proliferates is through the link forged by collective bargaining. The second piece of this I wanna say is that if you then think about places like Pittsburgh or like New York or Philadelphia or Detroit, places with big industrial economies that are heavily organized in the 40s and 50s, you can then imagine what the consequences of this kind of private sector health insurance through collective bargaining would be on the healthcare market, right? Which is that hospitals, previously had basically been a place where the poor go to die. And instead they realize, oh, people can pay for this now. We should invest, we should grow, we should get new equipment, we should build a new wing. And the healthcare market begins to grow intensely in response to you know, the steel workers in Pittsburgh winning their health plan. 
So, yeah, I mean, I want to kind of follow up on both of those points, because I think they're both relevant to the political economy of healthcare today. So, I mean, on the one hand, so where you start is with with an organized working class, the steel workers, the auto workers and others winning good private insurance. And, and as a result, sort of taking the wins out of the sales for a more robust public program like the one that Truman had initially proposed. On the other, the other side of this is, is that, that this private demand creates an industry that's privately administered. And that private demand and that private supply create a dynamic that begins to bid up healthcare prices. And, and ever since that point, controlling healthcare costs has been a big part of the, the policy discussion around this issue. I, you know, in the book, you really skillfully bring these two threads together to show one other interesting kind of consequence of this, which is how this peculiar market structure actually, in a way, served to strengthen the political movements that were being waged by those who were excluded from it, namely those too old to work and those who were shut out of the high wage, well-organized workforce. And those struggles eventually resulted in, in Medicare and Medicaid. So can you talk about this history a little bit and, and what the advent of Medicare and Medicaid in 1965 did to this system that had been developing in the early post-war years? Yeah. So if we kind of continue the scenario, right, uh, we now have these kind of growing healthcare systems responding to this new market in industrial cities. And it's worth saying in a place like Pittsburgh, I just want to make clear when we talk about it being an industrial city, I mean, in 1950, basically half of all employment, I think it's 47% of all employment in the Pittsburgh area was in manufacturing, mining, construction, trucking, warehousing, and rail. So it's an extremely blue collar kind of community. And all of those industries are organized. Deal is obviously the largest component, right? But it's, it's not the only one either. So if you think about right, the impact they're having on this healthcare system, it's growing in response to this new market. As you say, prices then start to go up. And as prices go up, the poor and the elderly, who are the two constituencies that can't necessarily afford, you know, get healthcare through, through employment for you know, obvious reasons, like they're, they're shut out of this kind of employment-based social citizenship by the fact that they don't have these jobs. And that begins to tell you a kind of racialized story about who has more and less access to good collectively bargained industrial jobs, or you know, they're too old to have these jobs, but one way or the other, they can't afford healthcare anymore because in fact, the system is getting more expensive. And already by the late fifties, you're starting to see pressure on members of Congress coming from this source and kind of growing political buzz around it. You know, they start to kind of pass temporary or sort of partially formed legislation that will eventually develop into Medicare and Medicaid by the mid sixties. But, you know, I think I don't want to gloss over the kind of struggle that resulted in Medicare and Medicaid in 1965. But I think it's fair to say, but by the end of the 50s already, some version of that legislation had become inevitable because this particular structure of routing healthcare to the working class through industrial employment was going to create this unevenness and was going to create this huge political problem. Now, once Medicare and Medicaid do pass, which eventually, you know, they do quite easily. It becomes a kind of consensus question, basically. Once they do pass, it's, you know, we should, we can notice if we look at this, what that, that means for the structure of the healthcare economy, right? That they don't upend it. They don't overturn it. They don't displace any of what's been established since the forties. They just round it out, right? They say, okay, we have this system through private sector employment for, you know, dispersing health insurance to a lot of the population, but it's created this kind of problem on the margins. So let's just deal with this problem on the margins. And it positions the federal government and state governments of Medicaid as buyers 
of private healthcare, right? As opposed to providers of it, or as opposed to changing in any way the kind of privatized structure that we've been talking about. I, I guess I just to kind of hang on to that that last point. This this a theme that comes up in your book a lot is this distinction between a, a demand subsidized healthcare market and and perhaps what we might call sort of a, su- a supply or a public supply side story. The British case, the National Health Service is sort of maybe the classic case, though in the US we have the VA where you know there's direct provision of care by the public sector. Whereas in the US we have public subsidy on the demand side. And I just, I, I do, you know, this issue of, of cost control keeps, you know, it's, it's sort of the ghost that haunts our, our healthcare system to this day. And I guess, can you just talk a little bit about the way in which this, this demand side um, model is, is, is undergirding these, these constant inflationary cycle that we see in healthcare? Yeah. So, I mean, we all know this all too well now, right? When we talk about the politics of healthcare, we talk about how much it costs, and when we experience it in our own lives as patients, right? Similarly, then we experience it as like, Jesus Christ, this costs so much. And, you know, I think there are complicated social factors that we can talk more about that make up that problem. But a key institutional component of it, as you're saying, Samir, is that the way that the political problem of health security was solved over the course of the second half of the 20th century and I want to emphasize, right, it's a political problem, right? There are people who are demanding access, who think that, you know, for a variety of reasons, quite understandably and appropriately and deserving of our solidarity, you know, they deserve access. This presents a political problem. It creates pressure at all levels of, you know, from collective bargaining all the way up to federal policy. And the main way that it's solved is to open the faucets in terms of uh, subsidizing demand, right? Medicare and Medicaid are the most powerful example of that, but even something like, you know, the classification of health insurance as a mandatory subject of collective bargaining is a version of that. It's a regulatory version as opposed to a social insurance version. It's even the case that Medicare begins to, after its passage in 65, begins to subsidize supply in a certain way, right? In that hospitals can pass through capital costs to a great degree to the public so that they can grow in response to this rising demand, rising subsidy for demand, they can grow and grow and grow. But this remains completely privately controlled in most situations, right? So the public is footing the bill in various ways, kind of paying for people's consumption of healthcare. It's paying even for the supply of healthcare to grow, but the administration remains private. And this is inevitably going to generate, or near inevitably maybe, going to generate political problem in the form of inflation, which is a question ultimately about how much healthcare do we want do we want people to consume politically right that's a political struggle that takes the form of a conflict over the uh, cost and inflation you know i think it's just worth noting in in recent decades as we've seen so many industries stagnate one of the one, the one industry that we see continually balloon has a lot of public investment coming into it through either the demand side or through these channels that you describe of medicare providing you know reimbursement for capital costs and the like even in an era in which public sector, the public sector, as you know, has been retrenched in so many other areas, this has not. And, and we can talk about why, why you know, this has been so politically insulated from some of the other forces over the last few decades. But I, before we get sort of 
more to the present, I want to just revisit this this industrial economy upon which this entire system was built. So we've got, you know, coming out of World War II, a well-organized working class, a booming industrial economy, and and the construction of this this privatized or semi-privatized welfare state. But just before you know it, that system starts to break down, right? As a result of whether it's automation or international competition or capital flight, by by even the 50s and 60s, we see a process that we now call deindustrialization playing out. And you know, these days, especially you know, people who watch too much cable news tend to think that the only thing that deindustrialization produced are are white male hard hat Trump voters, right? But you have a very, very different perspective on some of the consequences of, of this process, one that's informed by attentiveness to the uneven impact of deindustrialization. You know, for instance, that process was very much racialized all along with, with communities of color feeling the effects of job loss before others. And it was gendered with the economic necessity resulting from deindustrialization increasingly compelling working class women to enter the formal labor market. And, and all of this impacted the expanding healthcare industry. So could you talk about the ways in which deindustrialization gave shape to the workforce who did the labor of healthcare and how it ensured that that workforce is gonna look the way that it did? Yeah. So. As you suggested, deindustrialization, it begins basically, it's starting to show up, or what we can now recognize as the first signs of it are starting to show up basically as soon as the Korean War is over in the mid 1950s. Between 1950 and 1980, the steel industry loses about as many jobs as it, in Pittsburgh as it would lose then again between 1980 and 1990, which is the de- decade of really rapid decline that we kind of think of as when Pittsburgh lost the steel industry. So actually half the work was done already by 1980 in terms of job loss. As you say, that plays out in kind of racially uneven forms. So in the steel industry, as in many organized industries, seniority was by the uh, shop or department as opposed to plant-wide. This typically meant, until the 1970s, uh, this typically meant that black workers would get stuck in both the least desirable jobs, that would be in the blast furnace and in the open hearth to some extent, and the, co- the Coke ovens, the really hot and toxic jobs, and also would generally be the kind of first to be laid off, you know, last to be rehired. Classic story, you know, of race and, and labor markets across industrial America. So, you know, that meant that whatever kind of fleeting version of a stable post-war labor capital compact momentarily seemed to exist, for the working class as a whole never existed for the black section of the working class, right? That black workers might in moments, you know, be able to spend a few years in the steel mill before they got laid off again, but they were always having to secure economic survival through a more complicated set of, you know, strategies, cooperative strategies often, right? There's, I mean, all kinds of stories I come across of just, you know, people moving in together, sharing food, sharing housing, sharing clothes, watching each other's kids, I remember a story of someone I interviewed telling me about how her mom would know when she knew there was a, a contract expiring coming up and presumably a strike coming up. Her mom would go into the country and buy up a bunch of vegetables cheap and then bring them back to the city and can them and just, you know, lay in stores and like share them with her family. And there's just a million things like that, that especially African-American workers you know, figured out how to do to kind of manage the disruption that was already eating into their economic security in the 50s and 60s. But as you said, this process also compels 
African-American women into wage work. I mean, has always compelled African-American women into wage work at higher rates than white women because you know, there's never been as much economic security. But we can see that phenomenon happening really clearly in the 60s, healthcare work becomes the main destination of, for African-American women seeking wage work. And they, especially they start to transition out of domestic work, which had been the largest sector of employment prior to this and into healthcare work as that market is booming. So they're kind of the first to arrive in this new, new era, you know, and it's, it's better than domestic work in a lot of ways, but it's still, I mean, it's worth saying how marginal healthcare work was deep into the post-war period. The National Labor Relations Act was only extended to cover hospitals and nursing homes in the 1970s. The Fair Labor Standards Act, so hours and wages rules only in the late 60s. So, you know, you have women whose husbands have lost their job at the mill or are on temporary layoff. They figure, you know, I need a new job or a better job. I'll go to the hospital and see if they're hiring. And they get a job there, you know, paying some minimum wage in some cases, right? And that becomes the kind of basis of the emerging healthcare working class. This is happening. We're talking about Pittsburgh here, which is very much, as, as you said, a union town, right, in, in these decades. These jobs that, that these women and, and women of color in particular are entering in, in hospitals, what's the, what's the union story there? Yeah, so basically, I mean, to this day, that sector is largely non-union, both nationwide and in Pittsburgh. There, uh, SEAU has succeeded in establishing some bargaining units and a couple big ones, a couple small ones over the years. But certainly in the 1960s, it was completely non-union. And in fact, it's worth saying just briefly, when the Wagner Act was first passed in 35, the status of healthcare under it was unclear and was litigated and fought over for about a decade. And there was a nurses union of largely African-American nurses that formed a CIO union that formed at a Pittsburgh hospital, which led to a legal dispute over whether or not they you know, were protected under the Wagner Act. And then finally, these, these questions were resolved by the Taft-Hartley Act, which explicitly said in 1947, along with establishing right to work and you know, various other inhibitions on the labor movement, explicitly excluded healthcare workers. It, as many, I'm sure, of the people on this call know this story, right? That didn't stop healthcare workers from organizing over the course of the post-war years. And in particular, Local 1199 out of New York really kind of developed a powerful and militant hospital workers union beginning in New York, particularly with Montefiore Hospital being the kind of heroic struggle in the 50s. And then over the course of the 60s, beginning to kind of expand around the country in tandem with the civil rights movement, because African-American workers, in particular African-American women, were so such a large portion of the, health, the hospital workforce. And because it was it had this quality of a civil rights struggle, because they, they were, the thing that they were fighting over was precisely the denial of the forms of, of citizenship that even other members of the working class had gained access to. So that struggle shows up in Pittsburgh in late 1969. There's a big campaign to organize some of the major hospitals there in the late 60s into 1970, led by local 1199. Coretta Scott King is in town. There's a whole, you know, there's a whole kind of series of rallies and demonstrations and strikes, and they lose. I mean, that's like the simplest way to put it, is that partly because management proves able to divide the, the white workers against the black workers. I think that's the most significant factor. But also, you know, they're, they're unprotected by labor law, right? And the mechanisms of militancy that Local 1199 had drawn on in other struggles to overcome that obstacle are insufficient in the Pittsburgh case. And they, 
you know, they fire a bunch of the activists and they engage in a kind of um, like they bring in a kind of company union sort of thing. And then they, they keep the union out and it remains out to this day. And the descendant of those hospitals that were that 1199 was fighting with then are today UPMC, which remains an inveterate violator of the NLRA. One distinctive feature about healthcare work then and now is that it's very labor intensive. You, you need human beings to do this. You can't really automate it. And as a result, labor costs loom large. You, you focus in the book a lot on, on how hospital administrators think about these costs and they're obsessed with them because they need to control them in order to maintain profit margins. It's fairly straightforward. The one way you can control them is by keeping wages low, right? And, and another that you point out is to try to get more work out of fewer workers. So could you talk about, about this issue, this issue of, of healthcare labor productivity, or, or to use a more straightforward term, staffing, and how this has affected healthcare workers and their organizing efforts then and, and today? Yeah, well, I think it's useful in thinking about this to take a step back to manufacturing, right? And this moment, which was fleeting and which was never really stable, but this moment that we think of, of when there was this kind of agreement between employers and employees, both could kind of prosper together once workplaces were organized in the 40s and 50s and 60s, and you know, everybody, everybody kind of rose together. To the extent that that was true, which is limited, but to the extent it was true, it was because at an economic level, right? Industries that are able to increase their productivity in a kind of ongoing way, get, you know, produce more per, you know, person hour or whatever, right? They generate a surplus that they can, that it's possible to kind of share with labor, right? And that labor can make a claim on if it's organized. And, you know, in lots of interpersonal kinds of service work, including what you and I do, I think, you know, you can't get that same effect, right? Because it's not amenable to automation or mechanization in the same way. And because to the extent that you can subdivide tasks to produce more efficient outcomes, you risk degrading the quality of the service. And certainly this happens, right? I mean, employers do this all the time in the service economy, in healthcare, in education. But there's always a kind of push and pull because they're always, they're, employers have to test the boundary of how, how far can I go in taking what is a kind of interpersonal relationship and breaking it down into, you know, a set of kind of mechanical operations that can be divided among different people. And, you know, anyone watching this who, you know, has worked in a healthcare context or even been a patient in a healthcare context, right, can probably think of times when it seems like a nurse or a doctor is paying attention to you, or when you have, if you are a nurse or a doctor and you have the opportunity to actually pay attention to someone, and times when you can tell that's not in the cards. So because of this kind of structural inherent limit, on productivity, you know, steady productivity advancement in, in the healthcare industry. Employers, as you say, they have to find another way to you know, make their margins work. If, if we're gonna have private health insurance or healthcare provision, right? This is, a, this is a problem you're gonna have. And to the extent that they can pass on costs to the patient, that's great, they're happy to do that. As again, we've all seen in healthcare bills, but you know, there are limits on doing that sometimes, right? Maybe in the form of competition, maybe in the form of regulation, and so to the extent that they can pass on the cost to labor, they're going to try to do that too. And that takes the form of trying to hold down wages. And I think, you know, folks who come out of the healthcare union world have encountered this, right? Where you, if you unionize a healthcare workplace, there are gains you can make, but you also hit a limit, right? Because the employer is going to say to you pretty soon, 
that's not under our control, right? That has to do with the reimbursement rate from the government. You know, we, the, that has to do with the, re, the reimbursement we get from the insurer. We just, like, the money doesn't really come from us. It comes from them. And the truth is, there's reality in that, right? For that reason, that their operating budgets are kind of being determined somewhat from outside. Healthcare providers are always trying to hold down wages. And if they can't do that, to get fewer people to do more of the work. And this is a really familiar phenomenon now to anyone who works in the healthcare sector, right? That, I mean, every, every healthcare worker right now talks about understaffing. And it's because it's emerged, I think, for healthcare employers as their main solution to this productivity problem, which is just to, to, sweat, to sweat the people who work for them as much as they can. Gabe, I want to thank you again. This is a really terrific discussion. Fascinating book. I really encourage everyone to pick up a copy. The next shift is it's, I mean, and it's also, I might add, just beautifully written and chock full of really moving and heart-wrenching stories all the way through. So Gabe, thanks a million. This is really fun. Thanks so much for being here and uh, please join us again next time. Thanks, Amir. Thanks, everyone. Engagement with issues like these forms the basis of the classroom experience at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu to learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.